I'm going to go back to the subject of synergy as uh, yesterday. Yesterday, of course, was on scripture. Today, I'll be focusing on the church fathers. Now, you might say, why the church fathers? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, every one of them that I'll talk about today um, wrote and spoke Greek as their native language. And just as we today, if we wanted to understand, say, a, a French song or something, we'd con uh, consult someone for whom French is their native language. I think it's wise to go to the Greek church fathers often when you're understanding scripture. Uh, the other reason, too, is that they're part of our heritage. Let me, I see I should be on the next slide. Uh, well, I'll be up in a minute. There we go. Um, and again, this is something that I think uh, when I was the age, uh, maybe many of you in my 20s, uh, wouldn't have meant as much to me as it does now. But now that I'm in my 50s, uh, the example, the model that was set for me uh, by the Christians of my own heritage, my parents, my grandparents, others who were before them, uh, just comes to mean more and more. It sets the mark that I know uh, I have to live up to. Um, and so when we look at the church fathers, we're looking at those who are part of that common lineage that we all share, and in fact are at the fountainhead, right? They're the closest in time and space to the original preaching of the apostles. So uh, that's another reason why I think you just, you really, you can't ever stop learning from the church fathers. And the more you do read them, uh, the more you want to go further and the more you find. All right, so, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me see if I can find the right button again. Get that going, okay, yes, voila. Um, well, yesterday, of course, I had a lot to say about uh, the, div the divine energy and the energy of Christ uh, that was present, for example, in St. Paul. I want to kind of uh, counterpoint that today to something else that's in scripture, uh, demonic energy. And um, this is another place, I think, where when we read scripture just in English, we tend not to see what, what actually is being said. Uh, this is Ephesians 2.2. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this, this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, and I would uh, prefer to translate that, is imparting energy in the children of disobedience. And of course, Paul is referring there, addressing the Ephesians, uh, in, in sort of with reference to their former life, um, when they were under the power of the spirit that imparts energy in the children of disobedience. Let's see, that, again, I'm not getting, uh, okay. Um, well, look at the, the second verse at the bottom. Um, second Thessalonians, another passage where he comes back to this, um, and here he's referring to the one he calls the son of perdition, perhaps the same as the one that John calls the Antichrist, um, who will raise up rebellion against God in the last days. Uh, he says, even him whose coming is after the working or, or the energy of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. Uh, yes, okay. And then uh, one more verse at the very bottom, just two verses later. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. Now that's the King James. Uh, literally, I think, an active energy of error. God shall send them, that is those who are following the son of perdition, God shall send them an active energy of error that they should believe in a lie. 
Uh, of course, that's a little shocking. God will send a lying spirit and, a, and, a, and an energy of error. Uh, but I think Paul probably has in mind a case such as in 1 Kings, if you read the story of King Ahab in 1 Kings, uh, when it comes to the climactic battle of Ramoth Gilead, uh, he consults the prophets, and there are 400 prophets who tell him to go up to battle, and one who says, no, um, this is not God's will for you, that's Micaiah, and then Micaiah says, I have seen God send a lying spirit to these prophets who are before you. Um, so God will do this sometimes when he is determined to destroy sin, and uh, that will, according to Paul, be true in the last days. Well, the church fathers, um, Yes, uh, reading these texts, they noticed uh, not only that Paul refers to a kind of an energy that is demonic on the one hand or divine on the other, they also noticed that Paul uses that whole word group, uh, energia and energain, right, the words I focused on yesterday, solely in reference to spiritual agents, God or Satan, or perhaps Christ or the Holy Spirit. He was the first to ever do that. Uh, if you read earlier works, they'll use that word very broadly for the work, you know, the activity of the elements or of, a, of an organ, a bodily organ or a machine or something. So in the early Christian writings, the apostolic fathers and the Greek apologists of the second century, you find this, that energia, that word becomes sort of the standard term for spiritual activity and energy, including both uh, divine and demonic. So the work that's uh, cited here, The Shepherd of Hermas, is a very early uh, Christian work, probably late first, early second century. Um, let's see, I've just summarized it there, but I'll go ahead and read that passage because uh, it's a little more vivid, I think, when you read the whole thing. This is a vision in which an angel is speaking to him. Uh, the angel says, hear now concerning faith. There are two angels with a man one of righteousness and one of wickedness. Uh, how then, sir, I said, shall I know their energies, seeing that both angels dwell with me? Here he said, I understand their energies. The angel of righteousness is delicate and bashful and gentle and tranquil. When this one enters into your heart, he speaks of righteousness, of purity, holiness, and contentment, of every righteous deed and every glorious virtue. When all these things enter into your heart, know that the angel of righteousness is with you. Trust him, therefore, and his works. Now see the works of the angel of wickedness. First of all, he is quick-tempered and bitter and senseless, and all his works are evil, overthrowing the servants of God. Whenever he enters into your heart, know him by his works. So both those kinds of energy, the demonic energy and the angelic energy, he says, are present to us uh, sort of in the good promptings uh, that we hear, that we feel, and the evil promptings. Um, so uh, you have, a, in a way, you have three levels. Yeah, um, divine, angelic. You'll notice that the angelic, the good angel, the angel of righteousness is prompting, uh, but not specifically providing an energy the way that we saw yesterday uh, in, in St. Paul and then uh, the demonic. Uh, well, Justin Martyr, another early Christian writer, mid-second mid century, um, refers to the energies of demons that lead people into foul deeds. And again, I'll read a couple of quick passages. 
Um, uh, one thing that's interesting when you read the Greek apologists, they often refer to the pagan oracles, the Sibylline oracles and the oracles of someone named Histaspes, who was supposedly the, the teacher of Zoroaster, because uh, they thought that these oracles, these pagan prophecies, prophesied the coming of Christ. And Justin is complaining in the first apology. He says, it is by the energy of, the, of demons, um, death, has decreed, uh, death has been decreed by the Roman emperor against those who read these books, the books of Histaspes, of the Sibyls, and of the prophets, that through fear they may prevent men, that is the demons, may prevent men who read them from receiving the knowledge of the good and may retain them in slavery to themselves. Um, so he sees that as a kind of a demonic uh, activity at work in the world. Here's another example from the second apology. He says, it is by the energy of the demons that Good men, such as Socrates and the like, suffer persecution and are in bonds. While Sardanapalus, Epicurus, Sardanapalus was a famous uh, gourmand and lover of pleasure. Sardanapalus, Epicurus and the like seem to be blessed in abundance and glory. Well, so it's interesting. Um, he sees demonic power and demonic energy at work very broadly. Uh, where we should be. It's not going the right way. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, at work very broadly in the world, uh, one more example from Athenagoras, another Greek apologist. This is at the bottom. Uh, he says that it, is, that it is the demons who act under their names, that is, that of the pagan gods, is proved by the nature of their energy. And he goes on to give examples like the devotees of Rhea castrate themselves, and those of Artemis in a certain place, Taurus, when they perform their sacred rites. If anyone, if a stranger enters the sacred precinct, uh, he's slaughtered. Uh, that was their ancient tradition. Well, so um, they also saw, I mean, they being the early fathers, saw um, the gods who were worshiped by the pagans, in fact, as demons who were working through demonic energy. And that's drawn in part from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, you may remember when he's contrasting the Lord's Supper and the offerings that the pagans make to their gods, he says they think they're offering to gods. In fact, they are offering to demons. So that sense of um, uh, sort of, the, if you will, the porousness of the human soul, the fact that our soul is open to both angelic influence and demonic influence, uh, was very vivid for them. Uh, of course, they did underscore as well that that doesn't, never negates our own free will. So here's a passage from Origen where he um, sort of summarizes this understanding. He says, the soul of man while in the body can emit different energies, that is controlling influences of spirits, either good or bad. Now the bad spirits work in two ways. Either they take hold and entire possession of the mind demonic possession, or they deprave the soul while it still thinks and understands through harmful suggestion by means of different kinds of thoughts and evil inducements. On the other hand, a man admits the energy and control of a good spirit when he is moved and incited to what is good and inspired to strive toward things heavenly and divine. Those would be, if you will, the angelic 
uh, energies uh, that we can uh, open our, our souls to. All right, so uh, three levels, divine, angelic, and uh, demonic. Now, coming back to the divine, um, there's one further passage in St. Paul that I didn't mention yesterday, but maybe is the most important of them all, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, so where he's discussing the uh, gifts of the Spirit. That's how we usually refer to it in English. Uh, his term actually, again, is energy, uh, and he's making use of that uh, verb group, as you'll, or word group, as you'll see. He says, and there are diversities of operations, uh, energimaton, um, that is works performed. It's again from that same root. Uh, but the same God, which worketh, uh, energon, who is imparting energy, all in all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, again, uh, energemata, uh, dunameon, but all these worketh, energe, that one and the self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Uh, so it's because of this passage that in the patristic tradition, the gifts of the spirit are understood as energies, forms of divine energy. Uh, and as I sort of explained yesterday, um, they're energies that impart the power to fulfill God's will and in fact, to make one's activity God's activity, as we saw in St. Paul. So here's an example from Justin Martyr, referring to Moses, that he lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness in accord with the intention and energy of God. Um, one from Athenagoras, again, the Holy Spirit is he who is active, uh, Energun, again, uh, actively imparting energy in the prophets. Yes, good. Okay, at the bottom there, uh, the apostolic constitutions, you know, which is, I think, a, a fourth century work, probably contains earlier material, but it's sort of written in the name of the apostles. Well, the author there says that on Pentecost, the Lord sent us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we were filled with his energy and spoke with new tongues. So that's how they understood the event of Pentecost, that at Pentecost, the apostles were filled with the energy of the spirit. All right, Basil the Great uh, gives us perhaps the most uh, sort of fully, fully developed statement about this. This is in his work on the Holy Spirit that he wrote in um, the 370s to defend the divinity of the Holy Spirit against those at the time who denied it. Um, he describes in a way sort of two levels at which the divine energy, these gifts of the spirit, can be present. He says, as is the power of seeing in the healthy eye, so is the energy of the spirit in the purified soul, as a kind of a power resident there. And as the skill in him who has acquired it, so is the grace of the spirit ever present in the recipient, although not continuously active, uh, energusa, acting. For as the skill is potentially in the artisan, but only in operation, energia, when he is working in accordance with it, so also the spirit is present with those who are worthy, but works, energe, as need requires, in prophecies or in healings or in some other carrying into effect of his powers. And he uses at the end there the very same phrase as Paul had in, in 1 Corinthians. Well, I find this uh, 
you know, as a student of Greek philosophy, particularly interesting because Aristotle draws a very similar distinction. In Aristotle, it's called uh, first and second actuality, that to have acquired a skill, such as, say, learning to play the piano, um, that requires repeated practice and learning. As you do so, you develop that innate potentiality in the soul to the level of first actuality, a skill that is present as something real in the soul. But only when you're actually playing are you at the level of second actuality. Um, well, uh, and actuality is energia. It's the same word in Greek. Uh, well, that's what Basil is saying, but for him, these are not, of course, the gifts in the spirit are not skills that we develop. They're gifts that we receive, and they can be present either as a kind of a resident power or in the actual performance. Okay, so um, that's how he sees them as present even when they're, if you will, not visibly present, right, as a kind of an innate ability. Well, uh, given that, I think we should uh, give some thought to this question, how is God active in human choice? How precisely does this work, this synergy, this coalescence between divine activity and human activity? And how can it be possible without in some way negating or removing human free will? Um, I, I think it's clear that it doesn't, right? We saw that, for instance, yesterday in, in St. Paul, and I pointed out how for Paul, the energy of Christ that's present at work in him enables him to be more who he truly is than he was before. But uh, we can still ask this question and try to understand it uh, in a sort of a more philosophical way. Well, this is again from a work of St. Basil, which is in format of question and answer. So the question is posed, it says, speak to us first of the love of God, for we have heard that we must love him, but we will learn how this may be rightly accomplished. Obviously a very important question uh, for all of us, but maybe especially um, if, you're, if you're raising children, how can you help your children learn to love God? How can you help anyone learn to love God? Well, here's Basil's answer. He says, the love of God is not something that is taught. For we do not learn from another to rejoice in the light or to desire life, nor has anyone taught us to love our parents or nurses. In the same way, and even to a far greater degree, it is true that instruction in divine law is not from without, but simultaneously with the formation of the creature. Man, I mean. A kind of rational force is implanted in us like a seed, which by an inherent tendency impels us toward love. He thinks that love, agape, is actually something that's natural to our soul. And actually, a few, some of you were at the talk yesterday afternoon. We, we looked at a passage from the life of St. Antony the Great uh, that's very emphatic about this, how Antony, when he emerged from that abandoned fort where he'd lived for 20 years, sort of wrestling with demons in a strict ascetic life. Um, what Athanasius says about him, he says he had become fully natural, both in body and soul. And what he means by that is that the natural state of the human soul in him had been restored, uh, almost as it was, if you will, in the Garden of Eden. Well, Basil has a similar thought that the tendency toward love and including the love of God, is natural to us. But then he says, this germ is then received into account in the school of God's commandments, where it is wont to be carefully cultivated and skillfully nurtured uh, 
and thus by the grace of God brought to its full perfection. So we have that innate love of God, that innate love of light, of life, of everything that's good, but that love has to be trained and directed. And the school is the school of God's commandments. And that's a school, of course, that we never graduate from. We're always learning how to direct our loves. Uh, so at the end then, he kind of pulls this together. He says, men are by nature desirous of the beautiful. But that which is truly beautiful and desirable is the good. Now the good is God. And since all creatures desire good, therefore all creatures desire God. Uh, if you've read much Plato, I think that might sound familiar. This is something Plato says both in the Symposium and in the Republic, talking about the good, that we all innately desire the good. We just don't know what it is, and we don't know how to seek it rightly. Well, for Basil, that's true because the good is God. <laughs> it's another name for God. Uh, and we need God's commandments to teach us how to love him rightly. And that's why they're given to us. Um, so um, uh, I want to pick that up now and return to another passage we, we did look at yesterday, the one in Philippians 2 that's uh, sort of a, a central text for synergy. And look at how St. John Chrysostom is going to comment on this. But first, let's remember the passage. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh, O energon, in you, both to will and to do, uh, to will and to energain, of his good pleasure. Well, Chrysostom, when he comments on this, um, if you look at the bottom, he imagines the Philippians objecting to St. Paul and saying, um, if he, if God, does this himself, does himself make our will effective, why do you exhort us? For if he makes even the will, it is in vain that you say, you have always obeyed, for we do not obey. It's not us, it's God. Likewise, when you say with fear and trembling, for the whole is of God. Um, it's striking to me. <laughs> uh, Chrysostom never met or read uh, Augustine. They were contemporaries. Of course, Augustine wrote in Latin, Chrysostom in Greek, so they didn't read one another's works. Uh, it's almost as if the Philippians have been reading Augustine. <laughs> it's almost as if they're, they're asking this question, how can anything be what we do when it's all done by God? Well, here's how Chrysostom, uh, again, went the wrong way. Yes, here. Here's his answer to that. And he kind of puts this in the voice of St. Paul. He imagines Paul answering the Philippians. It is not for this reason that I said, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do, but wishing to relieve your anxiety. If you will, then he will make your will effective. And the Greek is energese, uh, tothelain. He will energize your will. He will realize it and make it effective. Do not fear or be distressed. He gives us both the hearty desire and the accomplishment. For when we will, thenceforward he makes the will to grow. For instance, I wish to do something good. He made the good itself effective, energesin, the good itself. And through it, he rendered my will effective. Uh, I have to say again, personally, I, I think of Billy Graham when I read that passage. <laughs> because I knew I wanted God. And I had a, a vague knowledge of what it is to be a Christian. I really didn't know very much. Um, 
God, through Billy Graham, he made that good effective. He made it real and actual at that point uh, where my will was able to receive and respond. That didn't mean it wasn't my will. And that doesn't, didn't mean that I didn't have the, the possibility to do otherwise. But God was present at every moment, making the good effective. Uh, so he continues, so he shows that by actually doing right, we receive much more the hearty desire to will. And that's what synergy is. It's never a one-time thing. It's never you're finished. It's never, oh, that was then this. It's always continuing and ongoing, even when you're not aware, because God is always actively realizing the good in the ways to which you can respond. So um, those are some uh, examples of how the Greek fathers think of synergy, at both good and evil, right? There's also a demonic form, but of course, uh, we seek the good form. Now, last I want to uh, turn to uh, a further set of passages that sort of take this a little further in terms of coming to know God. And the first one, I, I'm sorry I didn't make a slide, but it's going to be a commentary on Exodus chapter 33, uh, a very enigmatic passage, the latter half of that chapter. Moses is on Mount Sinai in the cloud of darkness. And I'll just read this. I think it, you'll, it, this will be familiar to you, but it's, it's very uh, cryptic. Moses said to God, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where ye shall stand upon the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Um, hmm. Let's see, it should be Gregory of Nyssa. Maybe if we go back. Let me try again. Uh, it's Maximus, Greg, uh, no, wrong Gregory. Uh, <laughs> not sure what happened. Um, I, maybe I, I, I'll just read it. All right, and then uh, if we can get the PowerPoint back in a minute. Um, Gregory is very intrigued by this idea, no man shall see my face and live, but I will show you my back. And somehow seeing God's back is equivalent to seeing his glory. And this is, of course, in itself a tremendous revelation. Well, here's how Gregory explains that in uh, his work, The Life of Moses. He says, he who follows sees the back. So Moses, who eagerly seeks to behold God, is now taught how he can behold him, namely to follow God wherever he might lead is to behold God. For he who moves to one side or brings himself to face his guide assumes another direction than the one his guide shows him. Therefore, God says to the one who was led, my face is not to be seen, that is, do not face your guide. If he does so, his course will be in the opposite direction. For good does not look good in the face, but follows it. Well, that's Gregory's way of saying, I think, what, what we were discussing yesterday, 
that you come to see God in a sense by following God <laughs> and by obeying God's commandments. And that's the only way there is. Uh, and in, in Exodus, that's indicated uh, sort of symbolically in this statement that no man can see my face and live because one who turns to look me in the face is opposing me, but you shall see my back when you follow me. Um, so that's, he doesn't use the word synergy, but that's what he's describing. And he's describing how you come to see God in a sense uh, through obedience. Um, well, another text I wanted to touch on is from Maximus the Confessor, uh, who lived in the seventh century. Um, what I like about him is that he here's gonna quote that passage from St. Paul that I, I read yesterday about uh, our sufferings, how, how we bear about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. So let me read this from Maximus and you'll get the context. Uh, he's also co commenting here on uh, a passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, a uh, very short verse that says, pray without ceasing. I'm sure you've all read that before and you may have wondered, how can I do that? <laughs> Uh, uh, I've wondered that often, and the church fathers actually have a lot to say about that. Uh, it, it's sort of a classic text for them. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, here's Maximus's comment on that. He says, unceasing prayer is to keep the mind in great reverence and attached to God by desire, and to cling always to hope in him, to be of good courage in him in all things, alike in our deeds and in what befalls us. It was in such a disposition that the apostle said, and now here he quotes 2 Corinthians 4, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. You remember touched on that yesterday, uh, sort of under the heading of how suffering, when it is done uh, through obedience, in obedience, is a way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul even says, filling up, completing, in some way, the sufferings of Christ. Well, in this passage, he, he says, bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our flesh. All right, the, the two go together. You can't have one without the other. With such dispositions, the apostle prayed without ceasing. For in all his deeds, as we have said, and in all that befell him, he clung to hope in God. For this reason, all the saints, all those who've been righteous in the past, always rejoiced in their tribulations in order to come to the habit of divine charity. So rejoicing in tribulations is, uh, as they see it, another form of synergy by which we come to know God. Uh, and it's in a very literal, intimate way. It's not knowing as something separate. It's by bearing about in our own body the dying of the Lord Jesus, and thereby also the life and the glory. Um, so, uh, let's see, another passage from Maximus, yes. Uh, from that same work on the ascetic life. And if you're interested in reading Maximus, I'd recommend that work uh, as a good place to start. It's so biblical uh, and so much sort of uh, just describing how he, as an ascetic of the seventh century, understands what Paul means. Uh, well, here's another uh, place where he's quoting from Paul, in fact, twice. 
He says, those who truly believed Christ and through the commandments made him to dwell wholly within themselves, spoke in this fashion. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Of course, Galatians 2.20. For that reason, while they were suffering for him for the salvation of all, as exact imitators of him and as genuine keepers of his commandments, they said, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. And by their words and deeds, Christ who is active in them, the one imparting energy in them, was made manifest. Um, And you'll notice here that that activity of Christ present in not only in their suffering, but in their blessing God in their suffering, their rejoicing in that tribulation. That activity of God is a way by which Christ then becomes manifest. Uh, And I suspect he has in mind here yet another uh, saying of St. Paul uh, that you may have noticed at some point, Galatians 4.19, Paul has this interesting way of putting it. He says, my little children uh, of the Galatians, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. Christ be formed in you. So Paul thinks of that, again, in a very literal way, that we become those who manifest Christ. And we do so as we share in his suffering and thereby in his life and glory. Uh, Finally, uh, this is where I'll close. Yes, Uh, Gregory of Sinai, who lived in the 13th century. Um, This work of his is in a compilation called the Philokalia, which if you're interested in the Greek Christian ascetic tradition is is sort of the great source. Um, Here's how he puts it, He he connects synergy to baptism. Uh, And you can, in fact, connect it more broadly to all the sacraments, but baptism in particular. He says, the energy of the Holy Spirit, which we have already mystically received in baptism. Now, mystically in patristic Greek means sort of in a hidden way, in a mystery. Um, We have mystically received in baptism is discovered or revealed in two ways. First, this gift is revealed as St. Mark the Monk, and now that's an earlier uh, fifth century writer, tells us, through arduous and protracted practice of the commandments. To the degree to which we enact the commandments, its radiance is increasingly manifested in us. Secondly, it is manifested under spiritual guidance through the continuous invocation of the Lord Jesus, repeated with conscious awareness, that is, through mindfulness of God, For prayer in beginners is the unceasing noetic energy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, if you don't know the word noetic, it comes from the Greek word nous that refers to the mind or intellect. Uh, But in the church, fathers often refers sort of to our capacity to know God and to receive God's presence. So noetic, you could almost say means spiritual. Prayer in beginners is the unceasing noetic energy of the Holy Spirit. Well, that probably brings to mind for you uh, uh, Romans 8, where Paul refers to prayer precisely as the groanings of the Spirit within us. And I'll just read briefly uh, 8.26. He says, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So that when we pray, uh, that too is a form of synergy. 
That too is the energy of the Holy Spirit that is speaking and active in us. Um, and I like the way he puts it, prayer in beginners is the unceasing noetic energy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because in that sense, uh, we're all beginners. <laughs> uh, and uh, when we pray, we do so as beginners, seeking what God would have us say, uh, the words that the Spirit itself would utter. So um, I hope this will be helpful. Uh, these are sort of gleanings from the church fathers. You could read much more and you would find much more. Um, this is a, a recurrent theme that just sort of structures the way they think about the Christian life that everything we do that's good, that's in obedience, that's sharing in the life of Christ is also sharing in the energy that God gives us. And that's what enables us to do it. And so it's never just our own, it's always his. And it's always a gift that he gives us. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll leave you and uh, thank you again so much for your time and your hospitality.